Am I right, sir, or am I wrong? Today, we are joined by two people who are going to answer a lot of questions for us. Daniel Libet and Luke Cyphers. They are the co-editors for the Intercollegiate. They are guys who do deep dives into college sports to reveal the truth. They are arbiters of truth. People that we need, they are there to pull back the veil, pull back the cover. We're going to be asking them about name, image, and likeness, about some of the articles that they have written about the hypocrisy of rules in college sports. We're going to ask them about how the hell do you sift through all this fake news and so much more. You guys visit the intercollegiate.com. They have all sorts of podcasts. They have articles. You are going to enjoy it and love it. You guys make sure to subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast, tell a friend about it, text, email, whatever you need to, because this is going to be a hell of an episode. And you can get in touch with me, GW Podcast at unafraidshow.com. You can listen to me on the Pac-12 Apostles podcast and also Fox Sports Radio Sunday, 2 to 5 Pacific, 5 to 8 Eastern time. Let's get to it. The Intercollegiate. <laughs> this is an interesting website. So I've read a bunch of you guys' stories. You guys do deep dives into all sorts of things, into college sports. Like, how did this start and why is it necessary? Sure, yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having us on, George. We appreciate it. Um, so we both have backgrounds um, in scrutinizing college sports. Luke has a deeper background that he can talk about uh, in terms of his time as a sports writer. I covered national politics until the most recent presidential election. And then after that, uh, decided I, I had an interest in sort of treating college sports with the same level of scrutiny that I attempted and I think you should treat covering politics. Yeah. It felt like this is something that's part of our public institutions that, you know, college sports lives on most of our public universities or many of our biggest public universities. And it was high time that we really take a hard look at it because the, the, the rhetoric surrounding college sports hasn't often lived up um, to itself in practice. And so I, I, uh, a couple of years ago, started looking in in microcosm at one athletic department. I investigated the University of New Mexico's athletic department for a blog I started called NM Fishbowl. And this was going to be just a couple of month project. It ended up lasting for two years of me just relentlessly investigating this athletic department. Not because there was anything specifically interesting about New Mexico, but because I wanted to see what it was like how an athletic department, particularly not a, a, a big one, not one with a lot of money, how would just stand up to scrutiny? Um, how did, how were the athletes treated? Who ultimately benefited? Um, was the rhetoric that the athletic department was using about its, its uh, importance and its value, what, was it living up to its own hype? Um, and after two years of that, where there much scandal was uncovered in the course of it, I decided that I wanted to sort of export that and do a version of that nationally. And that was where Luke and I, uh, this past November, linked up um, uh, and, uh, and launched the Intercollegiate to sort of take, take a, a real hard look at all aspects of college sports, particularly from the people who are disadvantaged by it. 
yeah. um, particularly for the people who don't have voices. So, uh, okay, it, it makes sense to me and I understand it. But when you were investigating New Mexico, how did the school respond to it? And like, what are some of the things that you found that then, well, I, I would say prompted you to say, all right, hold up, this needs to be done nationally. Yeah, so one of the, one of the first things I did was I made a records request, which was how we, do, Luke and I do our journalism now. It's, it's, it's mainly led by doing public records requests and then following where the documents lead us. So one of the things I had done early on at New Mexico was I made a records request for two consecutive years of athlete exit interviews um, at New Mexico. I had found out about these documents in the course of just reporting on an unrelated story and thought that this was a potentially very interesting window into the real experiences of college athletes. As a reporter, usually when you're interfacing with a current college athlete, you're doing it as, they, as he or she is sitting right next to the coach or the sports information director. There's all kinds of obvious reasons why you, you're not going to be able to get real candid feedback about the athlete experience while the athletes are participating. Um, but this, these documents and these interviews, which every Division I school is required to conduct, uh, seemed like it was going to be a potential window into the experiences of lots of athletes, lots of issues that are, are being addressed, at least behind the scenes or being brought up behind the scenes that may not ever surface um, into the public. And sure enough, it was a goldmine. I mean, it was, it was extremely revealing, the documents I got back from New Mexico. And instantly I thought this should be done everywhere. I mean, not that you were going to meet the same sort of luck in terms of the documents that are produced, but this is the kind of thing that the issues that are, were being raised by New Mexico athletes, some of them were specific to New Mexico, but a lot of them just seemed universal. Yeah. You know, opportunities to, to take the classes you wanted to take, um, overbearing and abusive coaches, um, insufficient uh, training and medical care. These are, these are things that I imagine you would find echoed throughout the college sports landscape. So that would be one such example. And there's been a, a few other ones where, you know, I kind of had an idea or was able to meet some success in terms of reporting at New Mexico and thought, this is not a New Mexico story. This is a college yeah. sports story. And, and, right. it, and it can be looked at everywhere. Luke. Yeah, one reason I was uh, kind of eager to team up with Daniel when uh, I think I saw on an email he'd sent out, he was starting this up and he and I had discussed uh, maybe working together on a prior project. But what Daniel has, has found in these records, at New, starting with New Mexico, um, is stuff that I just over 25, I'm old. Uh, 30 years <laughs> <laughs> covering sports um, at, at the University of Colorado at the like essentially what was the student newspaper um, through uh, a time at the New York Daily News and then ESPN magazine was were a lot of the things that were showing up in documents but just that I'd seen anecdotally and the other kind of through line in my career of covering this stuff is just the sham of amateurism um, I, you really learn very quickly. Uh, one of the things my beats was covering high school sports in New York city in the early nineties. 
And there's no such thing as amateurism. No. <laughs> no, man. <laughs> the players, especially, that was height of the sneaker wars, height of the AAU wars. Yep. Players yep. were getting money all the time, which uh, is, you know, not exactly a scandal, but the fact that this is a whole untaxed underground economy is a scandal. Oh, oh I, I grew economy. up I grew up with, uh, with the Pump Brothers. So okay. I so I oh. played for them, Gilbert Arenas, Mike Dunleavy Jr. So I, I see them all the, the all the uh, time. I remember when they were on. It was either Sports Illustrated or ESPN, the magazine, like the fifty most powerful people in sports. And people were like, "Who are these dudes?" I was like, "I clearly know who they are." <laughs> yeah, exactly. And 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 there was it's like that in every you know kind of major athletic pool, right? You know, they're 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 people who are funding these kids from a very early age mm -hmm. and steering them, if not to schools, then maybe eventually to agents or whatever. So they're already earning something. And, you know, it, it, the initial thing is to say, oh, those bad kids or all oh, those bad people who are giving them the money. Um, but the bigger indictment really is against the system that has you know, that forces them to do these things and do this underground economy and then, you know, force them in a really potentially bad situation. So that's always been a through line and it's fascinated me. So this is kind of a natural partnership with Daniel. See, I've always looked at college sports as, and this underground economy, they, they highlighted it on um, the documentary that was, that was about Christian Dawkins and the FBI scandal and and all of that and i'm like this is a victimless crime like it it is it like and it's actually like it turned out to be a crime because they were prose prosecuted but it was like a violation of a regulation which is different and you have the high school kids who are getting money from a shoe company who the same shoe company is paying the universities the kid goes to a university makes everybody else money like who is the victim here well, and I, that's, that really hit home with me. I feel like the whole reason why the federal government would investigate and prosecute what is essentially under the table payments to athletes and their family members um, is because we have gotten so confused about who the villains in this story really are. Yeah. And I think in large part, and this is something that I think Luke and I also share in large part, this is a failure of sports media. Um, we, you know, sports journalists have sort of largely over the last number of decades hopped aboard the NCAA and the status quo's telling of this story about who, what is the problem. The problem by their lights are people that are interfering with the regulations that they want to keep intact. Um, and, and who, and who's doing it right, which they would say is, is them. Um, and the fact that this has gotten so into the bloodstream that the federal government, that the FBI would launch an investigation, a multi-year investigation to basically protect amateurism. I mean, that's yeah. all what this is just shows how people in this country beyond just the sports world have completely lost the plot. And I think a lot of what Luke and I do, or at least the mentality we come from is doing a kind of gut check on our own industry 
and where we have failed as an industry to tell the right story and really identify the victims and the villains and the problems in this world of college sports. Um, and you know, a lot of the, the story choices we make and the reporting that we do is about kind of getting people to see you know, how the money flows, who really benefits from the system as it has come to exist. Um, and then who, who's really taken advantage of, which, you know, more often than not is uh, the college athlete. So who is the, who is the victim? Uh, and, and well, who is the actual villain? Because, because I say that these, that these kids are being taken advantage of because I can't name another industry in the United States where the people who actually drive the revenue can't then turn around and participate in the revenue. Like you, you can generate the revenue, but you can't participate in it. It, it feels, and, and I know that some of these hot button terms, like you know, where they use slavery or something like like that, to um, to kind of use imagery to explain how it works. I look at it like indentured servitude. That, yeah. Like, yeah, you get something back, but it's not nearly what you're contributing to the system. Right. I think there there actually are victims, but including the athletes one is even the, the let's assume that some of the best athletes especially in a sport like basketball are getting some under the table money and some benefit but then they're forced to lie and then yeah. they're forced to and then they're forced to where you know if confronted by an fbi agent are forced to confront potential charges of law, yeah. lying to law enforcement like zion williamson right now that's right exactly so the you know they're forced to live this dishonest in this dishonest system that is only really benefiting uh, the corporations and the, and the, the major colleges really. There are some other victims too, though. You know, I taught uh, at journalism at a division three school and the whole apparatus that props up this development system has spread into the whole education system. And I think it takes away resources from actual education. And I saw my students paying an athletic fee, uh, even at a D3 school, and then they couldn't afford textbooks. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of distortions that if we just really privatize this and let people be the Williams sisters and get paid early and tax it, you know, it's, it's sort of like the distortions that come in with, say, the marijuana market in, a, in an odd way. Yeah, and, and it and it is a bad allocation of resources, um, and I really do think it undermines, in a lot of cases, you know, the point of colleges, which is education. Well, okay, so what do you guys say to like that? Right now, colleges, if people don't always understand, is that they operate under two separate budgets. That there's the university budget, which generates in some sometimes with schools that are, you know, thirty, fifty thousand dollars, nearly a billion dollars in tuition fees, all of that stuff. And then there's the athletic budget, which gets spent up every year. And you, you, you know, so they're essentially living paycheck to paycheck, which has caused a problem within within COVID. And I've always wondered, why don't they just separate the uh, two and privatize them and probably college football in particular, separate it from everybody else, have its own commissioner, because as we've seen during COVID, it clearly operates under a different set of rules and importance. 
Yeah, well, that, I, I think that there's a lot of movement towards that. And maybe that's the inevitable place where it's going to go, even if the people who are in charge of it right now are going there uh, screaming and kicking. Um, yeah, I think the... Uh, <clears throat> not having a clear sense of the money is one of the reasons why the mythology and the deceit surrounding college sports is able to perpetuate. So, you know, the, the, to your point, how athletic departments seem like they're existing paycheck to paycheck. Well, they're doing that because they've been, uh, they've been trained to spend every dime that they have because they don't really exist in a capitalist economy here. Right. I mean, they're, they're largely propped up by uh, state money and by donations, they, they are treated as a not-for-profit. They're not taxed um, as a for-profit business. There's the not tax, tax breaks that? on their infrastructure. Their tax breaks on their infrastructure. They're, they, they don't have a, uh, you well, know. What are some cheap. of those? Uh, they, they qualify because they're within the college uh, system, special not-for-profit uh, tax abatements to build their stadiums. So whereas a a private business building its factory um, doesn't qualify for a lot of the same not-for-profit, uh, say, construction bond terms that a college campus would. Um, they have to pay a, a much higher cost to build their facility than than the stadium on your campus. So wow. there's there's a lot of stuff like that that kind of goes hidden, and it you know it, it would I'm all for cleaving it off and making it its own business as long as it's actually treated like a regular business and not like a part of the education system and getting those kind of breaks. And, well, and I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, my, my issue always has been, I've talked, talked about it even before the pandemic that if you are a university or a, if you were in your real life, if, if you Daniel Luke or me is making hundreds of millions of dollars a year, hundred million, $200 million a year, and then I can't go one season without being without saying, oh, I have to cut all this, cut all that. Then wouldn't everybody say you manage your funds poorly? You, you get what you get. Right. But there's no there's no incentives or up until this pandemic, there hasn't been incentives for saving money or budgeting correctly or budgeting wisely, because what happens when an athletic department spends up to its limit? What does it do? It goes to main campus. It goes to its donors. It goes to everybody and says, we need more. And, and except the athletes. Except <laughs> for the athletes, right. And, and, and if you think about this, I'd like to make this point. If you go on to the online bio of almost any major Division One athletic director right now, within the first five paragraphs, you will see some reference to how much money they've been able to spend. You know, so-and-so is, you know, oversaw $150 million of infrastructure improvements at their previous job. <laughs> yeah. This is how people get, they don't get money, they don't get promotions, and they don't, they don't better themselves professionally in this industry by being wise and prudent, you know, uh, stakeholders and, and safekeepers of, of, the, uh, of the universities and the athletic departments that they're entrusted with. They get it by showing that they can just spend money. Um, so it, it's an economy of, of no accountability. It's an it's a industry of no accountability. And again, you know, one major reason for that is they don't have to worry about paying the labor. So 
all the money can go to either them, the elite participants, the head, you know, revenue sport coaches and the athletic administrators and the corporate, you know, um, the corporate individuals who are involved, if it's from Learfield or, or the likes, um, or just, or the, or, or into building new facilities. Um, and so, yeah. And, and, and then they're further incentivized by this being the calling card for how they distinguish themselves professionally is by showing how much of other people's money they can spend to either pay themselves, their friends, or build new buildings. Yeah. I, they, I, they live hand to mouth. Yeah. Big hand, big mouth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what would you say to those people, uh, Luke, who say, all right, uh, if college players are paid, it's going to destroy amateurism. It's going to destroy the game that we love so much and, and, and the innocence surrounding college sports. I know what I think about it, but what do you tell these people? Uh, yeah, I mean, for one thing, uh, a lot of the people, again, going back to my old, old days covering uh, New York City basketball, um, they're getting paid in ways already. They're just vastly underpaid for what they are actually earning. Um, and the second thing is, it, so what? Um, so what des destroying amateurism? We destroyed amateurism in the Olympics in you know, the early 80s, and the Olympics were fine. Um, they're, uh, they destroyed it in tennis. Tennis is fine. Um, baseball never really had this system where it's tied in so heavily to amateurism. They were signing prospects, you know, in the 1800s, and that tradition has, has uh, continued on where you can sign an 18-year-old. Soccer, it's the same way. It's okay. Sports aren't going to go away. And uh, maybe it makes us change our development system so that it's a little more transparent. I'm all for that. Yeah, and I, I feel like this, this um, claim to the virtues of amateurism and how important it is to the, to the world of sports fandom is slipping away. I mean, I think more and more we're seeing in all different kinds of ways that the public doesn't care. And the point that anti-amateurism advocates have been making is that, you know, it, it's hard to even imagine why this would impact the enjoyment of watching sport if you knew that the participants were able to enjoy the full economic opportunities <laughs> that they're pursuing. I mean, if, if that does matter to you, then you are a sociopath. Um, and, and, but for that, I think this is just, this is just a lie. I, I don't think yeah. this is a sincerely made argument by those who are making it. I think they realize that the real consequence of the end of amateurism is that this is going to probably hit them in the pocketbook. I mean, it, the economy is a little bit more difficult if you actually have to share it with your workers, yeah. as opposed to just keeping all the fruits for yourself and giving them a scholarship and, and a few thousand dollars on top of that, potentially. What do you think? One other, oh, I'm sorry. No, 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 go on. No, go on, Luke. I was going to add one other thing to that, and it's that, you know, these amateurs, so-called, are not getting the full benefits even of the thing that they're promised, which in many cases anyway, which is a college education. They're not, they're, they're often channeled into degrees yep. that um, are just guaranteed to keep them eligible. 
they, you know, I've talked to many athletes and not just in football um, who you wanted to go do pre-med and they couldn't because of the chemistry classes, you know, organic chemistry labs yes. just cut into the practice times. So you're actually halting them from a dream. And in terms of like, what's better for society, is it better if that kid is, you know, playing a game for a few years or is it better for society if that that student becomes a doctor you know yeah i mean look at look at myron roll who went to florida state who was a Rhodes scholar and he wasn't drafted in the first round of the nfl draft because they were like this dude may want to go be a doctor so i mean ultimately he did end up to go do it but it's just like it like you can't say that you have these kids best interest at at heart and then do things like like this so what do you guys think the the answer is because i've always said that if you're a student athlete i would not want the school to pay me because then you can be deemed as uh then the it will go through the legal system and you could ultimately end up um deemed an employee uh, which would which could then impact your First Amendment rights because as a because w- when you work for a company there's only so many things that you can say like you can be bound to not say things that are negative about the company and all these things and it can uh, encumber some of the endorsements that you could get through name image and likeness because if you're an employee then you can't sign with people with um, with competitors to the employees partners. So I do think that the players should get health care, post-career health care, guaranteed scholarships instead of the one-year renewables that they are, you know, provided that they stay in good academic standing and, you know, don't get arrested, all this stuff, that they keep their, that they get a scholarship to graduate, period. And then have unencumbered name, image, and likeness rights, which then they can make money regardless like with with no restrictions essentially and then the free market will um determine their their value instead of like Mitt Romney said today oh there should be a $50,000 cap and I'm like where where did you come up with this number well, so I, what do you guys to, think the answer is yeah to that point i mean you first of all you have the experience of knowing what it's like to be in the position of somebody whose athletic talent had real market value so i'm just projecting as somebody who has no athletic talent and was never in that position. But I think at the end of the day, there's going to be this push to try to do all these half measures, give athletes some kind of circumscribed or restricted NIL opportunities, but then stop it there. The problem is, is that you're going to keep hitting the wall of bad incentives on this front. You're going to keep hitting the wall of people who specifically want to deprive the workforce of economic opportunity because they want to have that for themselves. I think, I think the solution is, you know, and and Luke and I are just journalists who are kind of scrutinizing this. We're not reformers or advocates. It's to sort of just let the chips fall where they may. I mean, start unpacking all of these restrictions. And look, there was no reason why, other than for particular individuals' financial reasons, all these things were intertwined in the first place. 
and all these rules were made. So it's possible that in, in the unraveling of things and the unrestricting of things, that there will be new kinds of problems that we didn't see or we yeah. haven't experienced. And I say, let them be. I mean, that this thing is such a mess and such a ball of hypocrisy that the best thing is to, you know, the, the best thing that could come out of this for the future of college sports and for the future of this relationship between higher ed and college sports is to just unwind this. And so to your point, yeah, I mean, I would say athletes should try to get whatever they can get. And if that includes compensation from a school, and if an athlete is in a situation because of their talent that they can say, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to lose certain other kinds of rights or values by putting me under this situation, then let them determine that on a, on a maybe case by case basis. But I think for many people, you know, you're three, four years in college as an athlete, you might have tremendous economic value, including to the institution. I mean, if you can make several, if, if, there, if we live in a world where athletes could get paid salaries um, of several hundred thousand dollars while they're in college, that might be worth it on a, on a case-by-case basis to, you know, to be an employee. Yeah. Um, but I know certainly that, you know, the one thing I, I do know is that is not what the status quo wants. They've been fighting like, you know, like crazy to, to distinguish athletes from, from being considered employees. Yeah. And as our uh, reporting showed, you know, the coaches are, trying to squash the first amendment rights yep. of, the, of the students, uh, you know, these athletes, um, whether they're employees or not. So I didn't, you know, that's like a problem with the culture of coaching. That's very deep. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I am where Daniel is and, and in the way, you know, where you are, I just, I think we need, it's time to loosen the restrictions as much as we can in as many places as we can. And I think NIL is a great place to start. And, and yeah, let the chips fall. Um, I, I look at these things. Tell me, tell me if you guys think I'm crazy or off base. I look at the, the way the NCAA was set up initially to the way our government was set up initially. That in things, things like Social Security, the way that laws were made, all of this, that they were set up not understanding how big things were going to get. So if you could if if the the if when the united states was founded if it were founded again in 2020 knowing everything that we know now the way the system is right now i think you would have built it differently like you know but then it gets too big to undo some of the old stuff that that you become such such a mess that the ultimate thing is just to blow it up <laughs> you know blow it up and start over which feels scary to people I, I, I'm totally of the same mind. I, I think, no, if you're an alien who comes and to visit Earth and sees college sports play out, just like you could say this about other parts of our country, this is not the design you would start up. Correct. That you would begin with. This, this seems weird. And, and you're right. Part of it is just the layering over history of different things that made sense in the moment. I mean, clearly there has been a method to this madness for some people. Some people really are benefiting more than they ever would under any other college sports system. And those people are the ones who all happen to have been in charge and have every reason to kind of keep it going this way. This has been good. This has been a good design for them. 
Um, but yes, if we were as like a culture deciding how do we, you know, have a collegiate, you know, sports apparatus, this would be, you know, starting now, if you and I were, you know, given the, uh, the opportunity to just design this thing, it wouldn't look anything like what we're no. doing now. It, it violates every sense of fairness and decency and practicality that you can, you can kind of fathom. And so, so yeah, I mean, but you're right. It, it's, it's certainly scary. The idea of blowing it all up is certainly scary to the people who are enjoying all of its benefits in its current state. And I, I think, you know, the rest of America or, or large part, especially college sports fans and supporters um, feel like, you know, this couldn't operate. If, if it weren't for the way we have it now, they wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to, you know, have football stadiums with 80,000 people attending and all the enjoyments that we get from this. What, what, is, what is very clear is there's a huge appetite for sports, particularly these kinds of sports in America. There is a market for these sports. There is a, an audience for these sports. Um, and if anything, we're learning that professional, let's just say football, can exist in many more markets beyond just those that have NFL teams. I mean, yeah. the most fans... The most fans in America who show up for football games are not going to NFL stadiums, as you know. Correct. They're going to places in like Columbus, Ohio, and Happy Valley, and Pennsylvania, Clemson. And, Clemson. and Clemson. Right, yeah. right. These are not cities where if somebody said, we really want to start another NFL franchise, we're going to put it in Clemson, South Carolina, you would say that's insane. There's not there a population. There are more people at the game than – there are like 10 times more people at a game – or well, it was like seven times more at a game than actually live in Clemson, South Carolina. That's right. That's right. But, but clearly there's such a broad interest in this stuff that you can have professional sports with paid athletes in all kinds of places across this country. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, I, there's lots of reasons to think we're not going to get to this point anytime soon, but I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of value that could come with just the blow it all up. Luke, where, what do you say? I've been a proponent of blowing it all up for a long time. <laughs> so, uh, and, and really divorcing school from elite sports. I think, um, you know, recreational sports and fitness has a place in our school systems, but I don't think the elite development of athletes does. Um, I, I, I really have, you know, and, and again, some of it is from covering different sports and, and um, covering international soccer, which has its own problems in yeah. development, but at least it's all transparent there. You, you know, you can, you have a better idea of, um, what exactly is expected of the players and their families. And, and, and it, you know, it varies a little bit from country to country, but it's basically, you know, if you get identified as a youngster that you're on a track to go pro, uh, you can start earning money from that fairly early in yeah. your career. And, and there's no, there's none of the hypocrisy that goes with pairing it um, with education. Education is one thing. And the sports are the other. And if it works out in the sports, great. And if not, um, you know, then you fall back on the education. And I think what's happened is we get the tail wagging the dog here a lot of times um, with, as we've discussed before, the, the attempts to keep players eligible, um, channeling them. You know, some 
people shouldn't be in a college environment. And, and it's impossible anyway to train, I think, you know, and again, uh, you're, you're a better judge than I am, George, but the demands of being an elite athlete yeah. are so hard. How can you keep up the demands of being a half-decent student? They're equivalent in terms of time and commitment and certainly op- a future professional opportunity. That is a full education. Correct. I mean, like going to school for college. I mean, the, you know, the NCAA sets these 20 hour weeks, which is laughable, but it's constantly. Yeah. I don't even know how they get come up. Right. They, they say it's 20 hours a week, but you're like, I'm, I'm here at like 40 hours a week. Right. How are these 20 hours calculated? And, right. and the other thing that this is happening, I mean, we're also in this moment where there's going to be a lot of hard questions just about higher education in general. I mean, we had these insane tuition costs. It's becoming unaffordable for most Americans to pay, to go to college without getting into massive amounts of student debt in, in many cases. Um, I think we're kind of reaching like a crisis point just in our higher education system al- alone. And so we'll see where that shakes out in relationship to college sports. Because again, I mean, I'm not discounting the value of giving people, you know, educational opportunities um, because of an athletic skill that they might not be able to enjoy otherwise or have otherwise. Um, but I feel like that those successes are coming on the backs of one, suppressing the, the economic value of other athletes, um, and, and two, of trying to create this, this kind of bad marriage between the prerogatives of a university and the prerogatives of athletic you know, business people. Um, and, and yeah, it just, it, it just feels like this is a failed state, a failed system. Um, well, one of the failures that I think is happening right now is where you've had a bunch of universities. So the the biggest ones have been university of Iowa cutting a bunch of sports, Stanford cutting a bunch of Olympic sports have cut like sailing, fencing, you know, diving, swimming, this, the, the gymnastics, some of the same things that I was cut as well. And I've looked at it as an opportunity, an opportunity for them to cut sports. They really wanted to cut already anyway. Yeah. And, and, but they blamed it on COVID and like in terms of you guys' research, what you guys have found out, what has been your sense of why these things were, were cut and were they, is this just a convenient opportunity or is it necessary under the budget constraints that they have, uh, you know, back painted themselves in the corner with? Well, I think it gets back to the question of what is even the real budget? I mean, you know, a lot of these sports cuts are made with the claims that they're saving millions of dollars. And then when you dig into the figures, they're counting up the athletic scholarships as a giant's savings, you know? So um, I think, you know, we're, we're talking now about four or five days after Minnesota just decided to ax four of their sports um, and, uh, you know, what, what is to be found in each of these cases is that universities are counting, you know, the full cost of attendance of all of these scholarship athletes as the savings. There are people out there, I think, who are making f- good arguments that that's not really money that the school is saving because it's not money that the school was ever spending. These are just, you know, another couple hundred people who are on campus. It's not like you have to build out new classrooms or hire new professors. So is this even a real cost? 
Yeah. Um, so what they're doing is they're addressing a budget. Is it is it a real budget or is it just kind of a fantasy budget um, that they've all more or less agreed to adhere to because by beginning to question the real dollar value of an athletic scholarship gets right into the uh, into the vein of amateurism. You know, if yeah. these, you know, the, the line is, well, we're not going to pay or give these athletes oppor- other economic opportunities because we're giving them the value of the scholarship. And so they want to hold that the value of that scholarship on a pedestal and, and make it seem as 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 um, expensive as possible. And so that's also playing into it. So it just gets back to no one has a clear set of what the real costs of these things are, what the real budgets are for, for everything. And I think that confusion is, is kind of by intent so that, you know, you can suppress the, uh, the arguments against amateurism. Yeah. And I think, um, bottom line, and I, I have not done enough research to make a good definitive answer on this, but I think there is some muscle flexing here about which sports are in charge of the departments and, you're not seeing massive cuts to football and basketball. Uh, you're not seeing any first. cuts. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you're not and, seeing any cuts. They, they're, they're still putting a new uh, jumbotron up at the University of Oregon, which I am very happy about. But they're, <laughs> <laughs> but they're, they're putting a new huge, the, the biggest one in all the college, college sports. That's not getting cut. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. So yeah, Uncle Phil is still going to be uh, helping out the uh, the football team and the state and Autzen, right? Yeah. But it's um, yeah. So I think that's a large part. You know, it's a it's a chance for the powerful to consolidate their power, which is going to be an interesting thing, I think, to watch play out now. Um, given our story that we just did on all of these rules. And then you saw this massive pushback, right, during COVID from the athletes, um, particularly college football players, just saying, screw it, I'm going to say what I want to say about this, that, and the other. You know, they got help get the Confederate flag taken down uh, in Mississippi and and all these things that that are going on right now. And it'll be interesting to see now if the powerful administrators in, uh, you know, the richest sports are able to kind of shove that back down and try to gain control um, and, and how they're going to try to do that. That's going to be an interesting question. And and I do want to get into uh, that, that dive that you guys did into the NC, into the different rules at the different colleges. But first I just want to tell, tell you guys, you guys remind me of, um, of the, of the people from, from don't F with cats because (laughs) When you get investigative people who just, who can't be bought, who they're like, uh, no, I really, I'm interested in the truth where the truth matters more to me than whatever it is that you can give me. Those are the people that are the most dangerous. Like you do not want to be bothering with with those people. And I was like, these are the two dudes from don't F with cats. I love that. I'm going to, I'm now going to steal that from you. Yeah. I mean, part of what, however, for the right price, George, Yeah, we're we're for sale. The, uh, everything's for sale. Everything's just not on sale. There you go. 
Good point. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, so many of the people who cover college sports in particular, but this is true about sports in general, it is an access game, right? I mean, you, you cover the beat, you need access to the teams and the programs, you want to be able to get your calls returned, you want to be credentialed, you want to be able to be invited to the midweek press conference. Um, there's not a lot of people who cover college sports who kind of are one step removed and don't require that kind of access-based relationship. And the people, you know, these jobs, I guess, used to exist, but they're in short supply now as newspapers are laying off staff and, and newspapers and, and other media outlets are laying off staff. So we, we are kind of oddities in that way where we very much don't want or need access and we and we're not looking, you know, a lot of our stories, again, because they're based on documents that are available to the public if, if they're requested. You know, we really don't need anybody's help. And so our relationship to the subject is totally different than most reporters. And for that, we are kind of liberated to write about and think about and take on the things that we think are need to be addressed. And we feel a responsibility to do that. I mean, that's why we're not you know, we, we, we kind of dedicate our focus to the kinds of stories that we think other people either don't have the time or the wherewithal or the, or the freedom to pursue. Luke, <laughs> so you, I mean, you, you've been a watchdog for, for a while. So how do you, I guess, balance that, you know, the, where if you are a reporter, how do you balance the need for access? Like a, like a guy that I look at, is uh is a guy named John Ken Canzano who is yeah. with the or- Oregonian. I think he does a good job of balancing it because he does need access, but then he's not afraid if the Pac-12 is on some is on some garbage, he will he will say it, he will expose it like the um like their relationship with the LA Times potentially paying yeah. there and and he'll do it. So but I find that so many reporters don't do it. Like like for instance, prime example. I found out that the Rams, uh, that that their get-back coach, that he had gotten arrested for uh, or was under investigation for a sexual assault like before the Super Bowl, right? Hmm. And I don't break news. I told three people who broke news. Had the police report too. I was like, yo, here you go. Here is a story. Hmm. You have it right here. Hmm. None of them wrote it. And then somebody broke it after the Super Bowl and everybody was like, oh, wow, what a, what a happened? Like, I, I was like, I told you this. Yeah. And they were like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, man. I, you know, I was at a Super Bowl party. I, I got lost. You know, I was like, yeah, yeah, right. You just you just were in a situ- situation to where the Rams were going to the Super Bowl. You had this piece of information and you didn't want to write it. That is I mean, and that was kind of a big deal. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, and I, had I broke news, like, cause that's not what I do. If I were in the business of breaking news, I would have absolutely said it. I would have written it, but that's just not, you, you know, I try to stay in the lane that I stay in because yeah. I think that when you, when you don't, I mean, had, had it been Sean McVeigh, yes, I would have wrote it, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, yeah. but, but uh, something else that just didn't seem, you know, worth it to me. Right. No. Well, it's tough because, um, and, and as I know very well, I mean, the media has just shrunk. It's contracted. We are like, uh, media people are like coal miners, except we get less sympathy. There's, you know, the amount of job shrinkage in journalism over the past 
20 years has been just horrifying actually. So, and, and the institutions that used to have your back, um, and I was very fortunate at, at the New York Daily News and at ESPN Magazine, that if we got a hold of something really good that we could potentially though get sued over, um, they had your back and you knew that you could go forward without, um, you know, with, with a defense, if it ever got to that, thankfully it never did with me. Um, and also a kind of a public relations machine behind you to fight back if somebody's saying that what you said is, is wrong or whatever. Um, that has all kind of disappeared. And, you know, people are on like shrinking pieces of ice, uh, you know, in the Arctic, they're like those polar bears. Yeah. And, and it, you're just trying to survive. And I think a lot of the, a lot of people who are employed have had to make decisions about whether or not to make waves. And so they're not, and then there's less competition also, you know, I, I covered the giants for a year and Oh God, I hate in, in the early, in the mid nineties. And I hated uh, waking up to read the New York post um, and, and the times and the star ledger, there were all these, you know, you were in a constantly competitive environment. And so that uh, keeps you, it keeps a fire lit under you too. That's really disappeared in a lot of markets. Um, yeah. So uh, it, it's hard. And then at the same time, like Daniel said, you're playing the access game. You need access to the star player, to the coach, to the uh, sports information director, athletic director, and you make compromises on beats. And uh, that's always been the case, but I, I, I'm really glad I'm not in the situation that a lot of uh, the, who what's left of the beat writing core is in now. And the model right now is, you know, when you look at successful in terms of, you know, where they are in their careers or their followings, the successful models of sport reporter, they're people who are breaking like scooplets, we, we call them. You know, these are not, for all of their sourcing, they're never kind of pulling the trigger on a big story or they're not more, most often pulling the trigger on the big story or a controversial story. They're pulling the trigger on a scheduling update or a recruiting tidbit or something like that. And they're putting this stuff out on Twitter. I mean, a lot of this news, a lot of the news of college sports and sports in general is now yeah. just being broken by people on Twitter and they're getting 500 or 2000 retweets. And this is feeding this new idea of the way that you can be a, successful you know sports reporter and uh, you know it's it's self-defeating but it certainly encourages people to you know stay you know in their lane to to use the phrase that you used and and to kind of continue to have this relationship with their the, the subject of their coverage if it's players or coaches or sports information people where they'll give you a little tidbit You'll, you'll break it on Twitter. You'll get several hundred retweets, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. And this is the job. Yeah. Um, you know, and we're also talking, you know, in, in addition to all the things that Luke just mentioned, we're talking now in this moment during all of the strum and drang about whether or not the Big Ten is going to restart uh, its season. You know, seeing reporters like Nicole Auerbach at The Athletic just being savaged on Twitter um, and, and for reporting 
things that are just happening on, you know, with the Big Ten and the decision yeah. of whether or not to start. <laughs> like, I, mean, I didn't do this. <laughs> I didn't do this. I am the the met the the messenger, and that leads me to like the all the misinformation and fake news that we have out there. Because I, I think that sometimes that if somebody gets something part of the way wrong, that then yeah. the other side can say, see, look, that's that's fake news. And you're like, no, it was 98% right. There was one detail that was wrong. And it's like this expectation of perfection. And then people plant stories to then like, to then blow them up later, to call it fake news. So like, how do we get back to a place where reporting is real, investigative journalism is real and it's not and we can like find somebody to trust yeah luke i'll let you take that one <laughs> well that, I, I wish there was some way to rebuild some of the institutions that i was lucky enough to come up uh within there was still it, one way that we were able to be successful at the new york daily news um was we had a dedicated investigative team for a while. And I, as I said, I'd been a beat writer doing high schools. I did some college uh, sports writing. And then I was a, a beat writer for the Giants football team for a while. And, you know, they're, the beat writer and investigated functions are kind of different. You can combine and cross them over. But what we were able to do there was our beat writers would get something by just being around the locker room, you know, cultivating sources, being there every day, you hear stuff, you develop relationships with certain players or people in the front office, and they're telling you things, not enough for a breaking story, but it's the kind of stuff that, you know, we call a gathering string, and you kind of build something up, yeah. and, um, or, and then you might get that one tip. Though there were uh, beat writers and sort of main sports columnists at the news who said, I can't really write this. Um, it'll blow up my relationship with this source or whatever. However, this is good information. Can you guys run with it? And we often did. And, yeah. we, you know, there was this nice ecosystem, if you will, to, to be able to do that, to kind of protect the beat writers access uh, but also uh, keep the information flowing and eventually getting it out. And it wasn't a perfect system, but we were able to do a lot of good work that way. And so with the demise of these stronger, um, you know, news organizations, and I'm glad that the Oregonian is still able to do it. And there are a few, uh, you know, islands yeah. where, where people are still able to do that using those tried and true methods um, I think that's good, but I really don't know in this new environment, how do you replace it and make it um, something that, that is, uh, you know, can support a middle-class lifestyle for the people working, you know, it, yeah. it, uh, Daniel and I are doing great work. I'm really proud of it. We are not getting rich. See, that's what we have to fix. That's what we have to fix. And we, we can, hopefully we can talk about that after the podcast. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, but I did want to talk about what, what you guys just most recently, um, I, I think, I believe it was most recently wrote about was the, you guys did the information request to what, how many was it? 64 schools or that you got information 50, back 52 schools and among those 
230 some odd um, programs in those schools. Yeah. Teams. Yeah. Yeah. And you guys found what? So much. <laughs> so um, this is an example. A lot of times of we, we're looking for information that schools don't want to turn over. This was an example of things that were lying really in plain sight. These were just the team rule books from last season. So from the 2019-2020 season of, you know, of 230-odd um, Division I sports programs. And uh, the idea came to me to, f to make these requests when I had, I had mentioned before, um, we had done a project to, built around these athlete exit interviews. And in the course of reading one of the exit interviews from a school, an athlete had complained that their coach had a policy that they could not live with a boyfriend or girlfriend with anybody um, who they weren't married with, married to. Um, it was sort of like a, yeah, it was a, you cannot live in sin policy. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. I wonder if that's actually down on paper somewhere. I wonder yeah. if a coach <laughs> is willing to sort of stipulate that for, uh, you know, on a document. And so the answer is yes. <laughs> in, in many ways, as we discovered, yeah. I mean, there, so what we found was a whole bunch of draconian and overbearing and overreaching and potentially in some cases illegal restrictions that were not even the ones that are just told to athletes. I mean, there's probably a whole bunch of other things that athletes are told that they can and cannot do but that a coach has the good mind not to put down on paper. These were what coaches were actually, you know, typing up and, and putting documents. In some cases, presumably these documents had been reviewed by university lawyers. So, you know, that was what made this so much more interesting was there was nowhere to turn once we found this for a school to plead, you know, deniability on any of this stuff. These were their official rules from, from last year. So we found, you know, so many things we found first of all some peculiar rules i think the one that we started the story off about luke was um yukon football last year under head coach randy edsel who is sort of a coach who has a reputation at least publicly of being very pro athlete yeah he's been an outspoken voice against some of the amateur restrictions um but he had a rule in his handbook that required players to notify him before they, if they had the intention of getting, of getting married. married. Yeah. Yeah. And we, this seemed like a totally inexplicable rule. Um, and the way that it was worded was, was very clear. This was, you let me know, must let head coach know, which was, became the title of our story, must let head coach know. And I can't remember the rest of it, but basically if you have an intention of getting married while you're on scholarship, um, and so we asked the university about why, what this rule was for, and they came back with an explanation that seems a little bit hard to swallow, which was, oh, this was really about making sure that athletes um, were able to take advantage of all the spousal benefits that the NCAA allows for. This wasn't a punitive measure. This wasn't to sort of dissuade athletes from getting married while they were in college, this was about making sure that they had every opportunity available to them. Certainly, it was not how the rule read to us. It seemed a lot more um, authoritarian than that. So that was one of the, one of the examples. What else, Luke? Did we did we discover? Well, just a lot of 
things on clothing. Um, there were the, the dating and relationship thing, especially on women's basketball teams. Um, and, and just general, uh, you know, like weird hygiene rules and stuff that really pointed out, uh, pointed to a lot of sexism, racism, and homophobia. You know, there's like kind yeah. of no days about it. Um, and, uh, and, and the other big kind of overarching theme was just the control, the authoritarian control that the coach has over you. Um, Did that oh, some... No, go on. I was just going to throw the other, the one that, that was probably the most shocking to me, I guess, was the fine system that Rutgers had. Oh, Lord, yes. <laughs> I thought that the, when I read that, I almost fainted. I was like, hold up. So you don't want to pay college athletes. And then you want to find, yes, they should not miss tutoring. I, I'm, yes, they should, should not. And there should be some sort of punishment. However, you're getting physical labor from them. So it probably should be physical like we did at Oregon. Like you got to run a hundred gassers, you got to roll something, but finding 50 to $125 to kids who you're not paying while right. the coaches are getting paid millions or, or high hundreds of thousands of dollars, how it, it was just mind blowing. Like, who approved that? That that was the part that didn't make sense to me. Like, well, why is this okay? After the fact was, I mean, we found at least one other, maybe a couple of others, examples of other schools that were doing that, not to the extent or to the cost that Rutgers was finding. Rutgers with football last year was at least had a policy to find um, football players from missing tutoring sessions anywhere from 50 to 125 bucks, which is not nothing. Um, there was other, there were other schools that, that charged their athletes less, but to the same, um, intent. But then I discovered in, in talking with some people and, and seeing people tweet at, uh, at us, um, after the story came out that, you know, there's, this this has been kind of going on through the years. I mean, there was actually even more extreme fines that college sports programs have been levying on athletes for things related, if it's tutoring or, or things that are even less significant than that. But yeah, I mean, the point is one, they're not getting paid in many cases, they're not necessarily even asking for the tutoring help. I mean, this is yeah. being, being put Maybe. upon them because, yeah. because you know, their, their sports coaches wants want to make sure that they maintain their eligibility. Um, so this just seemed like a, you know, they're getting it from both ends. They're, they're being forced into, um, studying and approaching their academics in a very controlled way. Okay. We can quibble with that. And then they're being, you know, monetarily punished if, if they, you know, have the, you know, make the mistake of, of missing, of missing one of these sessions that they might not have even asked for in the first place. But it, you know, this is just all part of it. It was just a, it was a library of rules about how to control every aspect of an individual's life that goes well beyond what even an employer could expect to control of their employees. And of course, as we've been talking all along, you know, the, the NCAA and, and college sports makes, tries to make clear they're not employees and yet they have more control over, you know, coaches have more formal control over athletes than, than, you know, people who have signed employment contracts. No hickeys. That was the other one. <laughs> so it, it's it, so. How do people? I, I've always won, wondered this. Maybe you guys can answer this for me, Luke. How 
how do people square like people out in the regular world you know joe blow works at the post office or works in works in the office building how do they square you know the things that are happening with college athletes and make it seem like it's okay you know where coaches have this much control coaches can can leave take new jobs but then they're uh, the the kids are restricted depending on if the university uh, signs off on their transfers. Like, how do people square this? I I, I can't comprehend it. I think, it, and Daniel and I have talked about this kind of privately. I guess we talked about it on maybe a podcast too. But just this sort of fan um, viewpoint that I don't really understand very well, but. They seem to see the athletes um, as living this sort of idealized life. I mean, they get to go to college, to school for free, and nobody understands the price that they have to pay for that scholarship and all the labor they have to do, A, just to get to the point to be good enough to get that scholarship, but B, once they're there, like you say, 20 hours a week. Yeah. Right. You know, the, the amount of labor they have to do. Um, and, and what I would try to tell someone like this is, you know, look at some of the athlete exit interviews or even talk to some of the athletes that we've spoken to about some of this stuff and how miserable a lot of their existence is. It just doesn't look like it's any fun. And look, I, I grew up in a, in a very football loving family. I have two brothers who were D one players. Um, and uh, it, I wanted to be, I just wasn't very good. Um, so, but I'm so glad that I didn't have to go through what some of these athletes are, are dealing with today because it just looks really rough. I mean, it just, it does not look like it's any fun. It looks like, and you talk to some uh, players and it's kind of joyless, Um at the end of their careers. Not everyone. A lot of people get a lot out of it. The camaraderie is great. Yeah. But one of the things we see in our exit interviews that we've looked at is just a lot of disappointment. Um, and so I would just, yeah, I would tell those fans or, or the people out there who don't really get it, you know, just look a little closer, ask the athlete themselves, you know, what it's like. And I, and that's something, I guess that's a failure to, of the media. I don't think we've conveyed what their lives are like, partly because they're under so much control, they can't really tell us. And I think the other part is that people just don't care. I mean, this is the source of their entertainment. And it's, you know, it's one thing if the source of your entertainment is an NFL player who's being well compensated or yeah. an NBA player, or whatever, but people ascribe a similar kind of entertainment to college athletes. And this is their escapism from their own lives and, and problems and, and challenges. They don't want to think hard about the thing that they, that they engage with to take their mind off the real world. And, and that's just not doable anymore. And I think the pendulum is beginning to swing in the direction of enlightenment for casual observers of college sports, certainly not to where it needs to be. But I think more and more people are realizing that there's something wrong here. You know, there's something, yeah. even if it's just along the lines of the way that athletes are treated, that this is just not 
a moral and fair system and that to simply enjoy it because it, you know, it, it gives you an escape for your Saturdays is not a defensible position for a fan even. I mean, you, you know, if, if you're going to, if you're going to, in, if you're going to take something away from this, even if it's just as a, as a source of entertainment, you owe it to think a little bit critically about exactly what's happening behind the scenes. And, you know, I, I certainly this moment, the pandemic and in the wake of the George Floyd protests and this kind of opening of, of an attitude towards challenging some of the norms of the system, I think, you know, presents a very interesting opportunity. I'm, I think, you know, Luke and I are natural cynics about how far this will go and if it will go far enough. But, you know, I think one of the places it's gone is it's, is it's, you know, it's confronted just the college sport fan with, you know, some of the darker truths about um, what's happening to the yeah. sport, to, you know, to the, to the thing that they love well, and that I, they probably haven't thought much about. Um, uh, Kelvin Sampson, who's the coach down at Houston, uh, not this past NCAA tournament because it didn't exist, but the previous one, he was up at the podium and he was crying. And I did a video about it, about the dirty little secret about the NCAA tournament, which is what did they sign like $1.1 billion a year from, from, from Turner Sports to, to broadcast it on CBS and all the T TBS, TNT, all those channels. Um, but then you have so many of the college players whose families then can't afford to go to the tournament. Right. And he had families like crying, like we will sleep on the floor in their hotel room. We don't care. We just want to be there. And the idea that you could have people generating so much money and their families can't even watch them play, can't, don't have the Big Ten network, don't have the Pac-12 network, and they're generating so much income and can't even get to the tournament game, it, it, it just seems like just so it, – it feels criminal. Like that this is, and, and then how much do you guys think that race is involved with it? Or do, do you believe it is at all, particularly, particularly in the revenue generating sports, which are football and basketball, where the majority of the athletes are black. And mm -hmm. do you think that that uh, affects some of the sympathy or the empathy as it relates to it and any of that? Definitely. Yeah, I think it's, uh, there's a huge racial component to the story, both in terms of the obvious people who are suffering the, the greatest in terms of their, their economic value being compromised. Um, and then perhaps as well, and, and almost assuredly as well, about the lack of empathy towards um, you know, black athletes who are being deprived of their economic rights by a white audience and by white decision makers. Um, there's no way to see, I mean, to not see race in this is to, is to just be willfully blind to the realities of what's going on here. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, if, if we were talking about sports that were fielded by, you know, predominantly white athletes, that were the revenue generating sports. Um, I'm not sure we would be waiting until 2020 to be having the kinds of conversations that we all are collectively having now as uh, interested parties in college sports. This might've been addressed quite a while ago. 
Um, but yeah, I think I, unmistakably there's a racial, a major racial component. If that's not just the beating heart of the story uh, to begin with. Yeah. And, and again, and I'll go back to our, our rules story. There was so much coded racism in a lot of these rules, you know, no do rags and things like that, that just shows a real, um, you know, if not always, I won't even say always, but if not, you know, clannish style, white hood racism, a lot of um, just behind the scenes, hidden kind of condescension and, and like barely veiled at sometimes contempt. Again, you know, the Rutgers rule policies had some really incredible language about going to going to war to get discipline out of the student out of the student athlete it's like what are you talking about that that i think i think it's very clear and and one of the things about peeling the layers of the onions uh of these documents is you you find it in all kinds of places um it's very pernicious and but one thing I, I wanted, if I could turn the tables, George, just to, for a second, is like, yeah. where is the line on discipline? Because this was something we wrestled with. It's like, you got to have rules, yeah. right? You have to have some things to, you have to have some some discipline in a team uh, or it won't work, any organization, right? But finding the line seems to be, uh, I think, a, a challenge that, that coaches are really going to have to face. And I think in a good way now, um, if, if these athletes are now feeling more compelled to speak out about things? Uh, I, I think that the, that if, if you notice that the majority of the best teams usually have the fewest rules, mm-hmm. they, that a lot of them are policed within them themselves and the accountability normally starts at the top. So it's something like Dabble Sweeney's social media rule, which I think is stupid. I mean, it, it's just overbearing for, for and no longer in effect, apparently. Yeah, correct, correct. <laughs> and because as soon as Trevor Trevor Lawrence tweeted, it was like, oh, oh, okay, I see. This is what we're doing now, right? So, it it is like it, rules need to serve a purpose, and players can understand it, and they'll follow the rules as long as things are consistent. It's when things become inconsistent that that there becomes a problem and players now are different than they used to be. So the idea that you're going to say, just because I said, so, you know, like we took when we were younger, that doesn't work. They need to understand why and what the purpose for this is. And so I, I think that having a framework of rules is important, but, but I think the most important thing is like, um, I remember I used to, have this idea that I would teach my kids the right things to do and the wrong things to do. And, you know, and trying to control every situation, but evolving, I've learned that bigger than anything else, I want to teach them to make good decisions because I can't be there to, to govern what they do and what they don't do. So if I teach them to make good decisions all the time, then I should be ultimately, then I should be successful, right? <laughs> like that if beyond, you know, uh, teaching them, oh, don't do this, don't do that. If I say, okay, here's how you make a good choice, even in the face of peer pressure, 
or even in the face of wanting to do something else, you can keep your eye on your prize and on your target, then, then that's the ultimate goal. So I do think that they're like that if you teach people to be accountable, which means being on time, having respect for people's time. And yes, there can be consequences for that. Like whether it's physical punishment, whether you get benched, but you have to keep those things very consistent. And there does need to be some sort of, um, and one of the things that we do a lot of times in sports is that we were, especially when it relates to sports in school, whether it's high school, middle school, college, is that we reward the athletic achievement and praise the athletic achievement more than we do the academic achievement. Mm -hmm. So if we knew that the, if the players knew that there was some incentive, some higher incentive for achieving academically than just, this is what you're supposed to do, then maybe that would incentivize them to do even, even more because if you do well athletically, you get TV time, you get awards, you're on the watch list, you're like all of this, you get all of that. Like, you know what comes, but if there's some academic reward, then you're like, oh, wait, hold up. No, 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 no. Uh, yeah, yeah. I know you got player of the game, but I got academic uh, of the award of the game. So of the award. Of the well, week. and think about this too. I mean, the, the, the irony is that many coaches, especially coaches with already massive salaries, have built into their contracts all these academic incentives about their team. Yep. If your team With has a, an APR that's this, which, of course, the coach has absolutely nothing to do with. I mean, the coach involved in, in tutoring <laughs> the, his, his team at that level. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, there, there could always be a system where there's financial rewards as well for, 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 uh, for academics as it relates to uh, people on – in these programs where there's clearly money to go around, at least for the coaches to, to bonus off of them. But I think the, the, the tough thing is, you know, and this is part of the culture of sports as well, where it really is the, you know, it, it, there, there are these questions of where does the line of authority and accountability for a coach end and the, and the player's life is outside of that. And I think particularly for young athletes, if it's in high school or college, um, there's an expectation that the coach will be a kind of parental figure and a parent can punish you. Yeah. Um, and this kind of needs to be, you know, this needs to be addressed in, in, in the course of college sports reform. How much do we want our coaches to operate as fathers and mothers of their athletes? And, you know, sometimes there's a really redeeming sense, you know, we're, we're a family, you know, and, and I'm going to take care, you know, of a parents or a parent sees a, a player off to uh, a school and wants to hear a coach say, you know, I'm going to treat your, your uh, son like my son. And I'm going to yeah. take care of your son for these, you know, three, four, five years. Um, and but the flip side is that there's now a level of control from a coach who's an adult over a player who's an adult and without, again, really much compensation for that control. You know, and, and, you know, so, so this is, these are kind of deeper questions than even are in just about college sports and sports reform. This is kind of just sport culture and some of the consequences sometimes as it plays out in college sports. Yeah. So what, uh, so to uh, finish up, well, I want to get, get back to the inner, the intercollegiate for a, a minute. Like what is the, like, 
what is the goal for the intercollegiate and what types of things are you guys working on right now? Yeah, well, I think our goal is just limited to continuing to try to, to, you know, illuminate issues and contradictions and problems in college sports. I think we don't have a sort of far reaching goal. We're looking for this reform to happen or that reform to happen. We're not necessarily, though we, we obviously sort of come from a reformist zeal, we're not reformers. I mean, we're, you know, if, if nothing happens, it'll just be more for us to point out about how nothing's happening. Um, but so I think, I think our, 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 our mission is just purely journalistic. Um, and, and in so far as we're making a difference, it's obviously to bring attention to things that are unfair and with the hope that people who are in charge, um, improve upon them. Um, but I'd also don't think we're here to, you know, not that we would even be able to do this anyway, but you know, we're not here to save college sports from itself. Um, you know, we're here to, you know, spare the, our, our interest is in sparing unnecessary victimhood in college sports, wherever it can be found. But it's, you know, it's for college sports and it's stakeholders to figure out how to reconcile these problems that we're, you know, more than happy to point out with our work. One other thing that we want to do, uh, and, and, Daniel did very well with USA Today last month is, you know, we, we're, we want to help other media outlets uh, point out some of this stuff. So Daniel did a story with USA Today on uh, Texas Tech coach Marlene Stallings, which came from public document searches. Um, and ultimately, she lost her job because of abusive tactics with her players. Um, and we have every public document we get is open sourced. Um, it's out there on our website for anybody to inspect. So, you know, if uh, you want to go in and see stuff about your school or the school you're covering or whatever, um, it, it's out there for, for people to do even deeper dives. I mean, we have a lot of documents and we can't absorb it all. So <laughs> <laughs> That would be the understatement. A lot of documents. That yeah. is... <laughs> So, you know, we're happy to, that's why we've just left it out there for people and we encourage um, all kinds of folks to, to look into it. That's what it's there for. Oh, good, good, man. Well, listen, thank you guys for joining me on the podcast to today. We'll continue to promote the intercollegiate because these are things that matter to me as, as well. And I know that informing the public with real um, with the facts and things that they can point to and say, oh, this isn't fake news because it's, it's in print. This is what was said. This is what was done based upon what was in these documents, which the school produced. So you can't say it's a lie. So I, I can appreciate stuff like that where I can tweet it out, where I can repeat it on whether it's television, radio, or whatever, and I know that this that these are facts behind it. That that's that's the value of, of relying on on their documents is is, is exactly what you said. <laughs> and, we, and we really appreciate it, George. Thanks for having us. Good time. Man, man, and uh and I'm not gonna F with cats and I'm not gonna F with the intercollegiate <laughs> either. <laughs> and we won't make public records requests of you. We can't <laughs> <anyway>. <laughs> oh good. <laughs> All right, peace out.
All right. Take care, George. Thanks so much.